Today's reading is from the first chapter of the book of Acts. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave them convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you, going, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid them hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken away from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Good morning, everyone. It's, uh, it's great to see you all and, and actually to be sort of physically uh, with you again. I'm sure I'm not the only one saying that coming along. It's been a, it's been a long and a, and a sort of strange time, hasn't it? Uh, over, I suppose it would have been three years probably since I've actually uh, been not quite here, but across the road where, which has probably turned into a bit of a building site just now, has it. So I'll look forward to, to coming back again and uh, hopefully <laughs> if I'm invited back again and, um, and see, see the results of that again. Um, I don't know if anybody here has been gliding before. Have you ever been up in a, a glider? Yeah? Is that something you do regularly, or just was that a one-off? Or? Yeah. <laughs> so I, when I was, um, I suppose when I was a, a teacher up in Elgin, actually, and there some of the, the, the teachers there were into gliding. They were, they were members of the Highland Gliding Club, and so they decided. Uh, one day to run a, a sort of a, in an evening, an event, and invite uh, whoever wanted to come along to get a taste of, of gliding. And I thought, that sounds like a bit of a, bit of a fun, bit of a laugh. Um, you know, let's, you know, let's have a go at that. So, so there's a few of us went, went along and, and we get taken up and, 
I tried, it was about 20, 20 years ago. I love to tell the tale, obviously, but, but, uh, you know, and for what I remember, I think I had to sit in the front of the window and the guy who was the pilot sat in the back. And where it was just in a big field and you're in this plane and it was, you know, as you sat into the plane and thought, Jings, this is, I'm going up in the sky here in this, this plane that's got no engine in it. <laughs> it seemed a bit kind of, you know, suddenly I was sort of beginning to regret what I was doing. But, but anyway, and, and it wasn't, you've maybe seen gliders where, where you have an actual plane tows them and pulls them up into the sky. But the way this one worked, it was like a, a at the other end of the, the field was this big sort of winch thing, like a big coil of, and you had a cable came and it attached underneath the plane, the glider that I was in. And then it suddenly just started moving and you saw the cable tightening in front of you and you get pulled along by this cable going bumping along this field faster and faster until you are sort of catapulted up into the air. And uh, your stomach was, uh, <laughs> my stomach anyway, was sort of going up and down. But the reassuring thing was that I had a pilot behind me. The thing that reassured me was that there was a guy there who was experienced and who I hope knew <laughs> knew what he was doing. But one of the things, then you heard this, you heard this click or a, it was really like a clunk. And this was the cable underneath draw it at one point um the, the, the pilot just threw a switch and this the cable fell and that was a bit of a thought as well. Not that I'm not really sure how that cable would have stopped me falling out the sky really. But there was something sort of secure about 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 that and suddenly you think, Jings, we are on our own up here. Um and but then I began began to enjoy it after a while and and you know it it wasn't, I, I had this idea it was going to be really quiet, but it was actually it was quite noisy with the wind whistling by. So anyway, did it once, and then did it again the second time. And the second time was still all those same feelings of fear. But then when we were up in the air, and I was just getting relaxed, and then the pilot behind me says to me, right, he says, you're in control now. And at that, and I felt, and, and straight away the plane started kind of dipping down. And, and he said, just pull the paddles, pull the paddles. He says, they're quite sensitive. And I'm like, oh. And I was never felt so scared in my life, you know, to think, you know. And, and again, the only thing that reassured me was, if I go all wrong here, he can, he can take the controls back again. Now, you're maybe thinking, what on earth has this got to do with the ascension or what I'm talking about? I suppose what I was thinking, the reason I'm telling you this story is that I was thinking what I was like in that glider and the fear that I felt when he said to me, you're in charge now. And I thought, is that how the disciples felt a bit after Easter? They had been so used to being with Jesus. And they loved being with Jesus. They loved as he, as they traveled uh, throughout Palestine, as Jesus taught and told stories and healed people. And, and the disciples were part of that. And it was brilliant to be associated with Jesus. It was a fantastic feeling to, to be Jesus' friend. They had been chosen by Jesus to be part of his gang. But now, 
something that they, despite Jesus had told them, and he tried telling them again and again and again that he was going to have to die. But the disciples just couldn't really get that into their heads. But now this had happened. Jesus had, had left them. And we sometimes, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, we were celebrating Easter Sunday, the most significant day, not just in the Christian calendar, but really the most significant day of all of history. And and we quite rightly celebrate Easter Sunday as a day of great triumph and victory. But I'm not sure it really felt quite like that for the disciples. When, when, when you read about the, the accounts of Easter Sunday, there was an awful lot of fear, actually, on Easter Sunday. There was a lot of just confusion and misunderstanding. In fact, really, it was the, the, the women who led the way. The women were way ahead of the, the, the men on Easter Sunday. The women led the way in terms of courage and faith. And that's a reminder to us guys, you know, we don't like to admit it, but we really need to listen to our our women a lot more because we know they often get it right when we are getting it wrong. But the disciples, you'll remember, they were locked away in a room on Easter Sunday evening. They had heard all these confusing stories that, that Jesus was alive now, that, that his body wasn't in the, the grave anymore, and but I couldn't quite take it in. This couldn't be true, could it? How could he possibly? They had some of them had witnessed him dying, and they thought now that they, really they were going to be next to go, and they were terrified for their own lives. And Jesus suddenly appeared in their midst. And he said to them, look, look at the the prints of the nails in my hands. Look at the wind in my side. Touch me if you want. It's really me. I'm really alive. This isn't a ghost. It's me. And they were overjoyed. But they still couldn't quite take it in. They couldn't quite understand what was going on. And so we have this period of, of 40 days. I mean, we've, you've kind of fast forward history a bit here at Fernie Hill. We, we, Easter Sunday was just a fortnight ago, but, but it was actually between Easter Sunday and, and, um, the ascension, there was this 40 day period. And we read earlier how Jesus appeared to them during this time, he appeared to them over a, f- a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. He presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. We sometimes think that, that it's just today that the people are, are ha- it's hard to convince people about the reality of God. We, we think, well, today people are really cynical today. But, you know, it wasn't really so different back then. People still took a bit of convincing as to the reality of what had happened. People found it hard to believe that the Jesus who they loved and had spent so much time with, who had been taken from them and crucified, that he was alive again. They didn't find that easy to accept or to believe. It was difficult. 
And so over this period of 40 days, Jesus appeared to them. He wasn't living with them as he'd lived with them previously, but he appeared to them. I think last week you, you, were, you, you looked at one example of that where he appeared to them. That the disciples had gone back out fishing again. Most of them had been fishermen, and they were out in the boat, and Jesus appeared by the shore. And he told them what to do, and they caught that miraculous catch of fish, and, and they came back, and he, he cooked for them, and he ate with them. He was a real person, alive again. He, he came and visited them and appeared to them until this day, when having prepared them for what lay ahead, he returned to the Father. Jesus was, in that period of 40 days, was really not just preparing the disciples for, for what lay ahead, but, but he, was, he was speaking to them about that they now, that they were going to have to be in control. He was still going to be with them, but he wasn't going to be with them physically as he had been. But he was going to be with them in his spirit. He said to them he would never leave them, never abandon them. But he wanted during that 40 days really for them to move from being doubters to believers. I'm not sure if I'm doing something wrong with this clicker. Is it just a... You could just find it. Can you turn it on? Move it on for me. He wanted them to move from being doubters to believers. We've already heard Wendy was telling us earlier how questions are not necessarily a bad thing. All of us have doubts at times. But if we just get stuck in our doubt, that is not a good thing. Sometimes we feel almost like we're scared to, to ask our questions or, or ashamed that, that we have doubts. Doubts can be a positive thing if we air them and share them and talk about them. They can help us move on in our faith. Don't be afraid or ashamed to have questions. That can be a positive thing. But don't get stuck in your doubt. There are perhaps some of you here today and you've never really put your faith and your trust in Jesus. And for the first time, you need to move from doubt to belief. But there's others of us, and we've been Christians a long time, and questions come up, and we can get stuck in doubt. Don't get stuck in your doubt. Talk to other Christians, to, to people you know. Share your questions. Ask your questions. These disciples, they had doubts and they were unsure. And these were guys who'd spent so much time with, with Jesus, but still they had questions, still they had doubts. But the reality of Jesus' death and resurrection changed them from being doubters to believers. And one of the great proofs of Christianity is the transformation in this small group of guys and women who trusted in Jesus, who believed in Jesus. 
They went from being people who were hiding away in in an upper room, absolutely terrified and scared for their lives, to a few days later, at Pentecost, they preached the message to a crowd, a frightening, scary crowd who had gathered, a a crowd who who were really being abusive. and, And yet Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, was able to to explain to them. And we read there, he says to them in Acts chapter 2, he says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And Peter went on to challenge them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You know, that day on the day of Pentecost, about 3,000 people stepped forward and put their hope and their trust in Jesus. They moved from being doubters to believers in Jesus. I wonder, where are you this morning? I wonder, is there someone here and you need to move from a place of doubt to a place of belief this morning? Jesus wants to share his new life with you. He wants you to know him as his friend, his comforter, his helper. The guy who who wrote this, the, the book of Acts that we've been reading this morning, is a guy called Luke, the very same Luke who wrote Luke's Gospel. And really, the book of Acts is the sequel. It's, it's the next chapter. The, the Gospel of Luke is the life story of Jesus. And why did he write that book? Well, you see, Luke himself was an outsider. He wasn't one of Jesus' original disciples. He wasn't even a a, a Jew, but something about the story of Jesus caught his attention, and he began to investigate the life of Jesus for himself. He interviewed some of the disciples. He, He read what had been written about Jesus. He interviewed eyewitnesses. He collected together the stories and the reports about on the life of Jesus. And Luke became convinced that Jesus was the real deal. He got to know the Apostle Paul, and he spent a lot of time traveling with Paul, and and Luke saw the difference that Jesus made to so many people. And so he wrote his gospel, The Life Story of Jesus, and he wrote this book of Acts about the beginnings of the church, He wrote these books for a friend called Theophilus. We don't know an awful lot about Theophilus. We believe he was an important man, perhaps a a Roman uh, governor or a man of some sort of authority and importance. 
But Luke told, said to him in, in his gospel, he said, I've written this book so that you can be certain about the things you have been taught. Luke wanted, wanted Theophilus and, and other people to move from being doubters to believers. But that step of faith, that step of belief in Jesus, that, that's not the end of the story. That's just the start of the story. That is the start of a journey. And another thing that, that he wants us to do is that he wants us to move from being um, rulers or to servants. You see, these disciples, the disciples of Jesus, there was an attitude in their minds that had to change. Throughout, throughout Jesus' life, the, the, the disciples, Jesus would often speak to his disciples about the kingdom of God. But again and again, the disciples really kind of misunderstood what, what Jesus was trying to say to them about this. The great hope was that Jesus, or their great hope was that, that Jesus was going to make Israel a powerful nation again. Currently, Israel was occupied by the, the Romans. And that was a really humiliating situation for, for, for all of the people there in Israel. They, they, re, they knew their history. They, they had a proud history. They, they had this proud history of being God's chosen people. They had been a significant nation, a small nation, but powerful way beyond their size in that whole region. But now they were an occupied country. They were dominated by the Romans. And that was shameful to them. And they looked forward to the day when they would be free from Roman rule and oppression. And they hoped that Jesus as Messiah was the man who was going to do that. He was going to create a, a start off a whole new chapter in the history of Israel. And so even here, we read earlier, as Jesus prepared to return to his father, the disciples, they, they excitedly crowded round him and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They thought this was it. This was the moment, surely. And they hoped that, that just as he was going to re restore power to Israel, that they would be like rulers alongside Jesus. Oftentimes during, during his life, they, they would be heard that the, the disciples would be heard squabbling amongst each other which one of them was going to be most important when the kingdom came? In the kingdom of God, which of them would have the most important seats of power and influence? And that's just so, so human, isn't it? It's so like us. We look for our own interests. But while the disciples were, were obsessing over you know, having the, the, the most important place in the kingdom of God, the kingdom that Jesus had actually died to establish was a kingdom not just confined to, to one nation, but a kingdom that would welcome people from every, from every nation, tribe, people, and language. 
the kingdom of God, the kingdom that, that Jesus had died died for was a kingdom that would throw the doors open to all of us who were willing to put our faith and our trust in Jesus. In the imagination of the disciples, Jesus' kingdom was a place where they were going to to rule with Jesus, where they would have power and authority and status. But the kingdom that Jesus had died to establish was a kingdom not not where we grab onto and hold on to power or, or or status, but it's a kingdom of humility and of service. You know, even on the night that, that Jesus Jesus was arrested, even on that last night together in an upper room as he shared Passover with his disciples for the last time, even then the disciples were squabbling over which of them was the most important person. And as they were kind of squabbling, something suddenly caught their attention. Jesus had taken a basin of water and he'd, he'd taken off his outer garment and he'd wrapped a towel around his waist. And the disciples couldn't believe what they were seeing. Jesus was washing one of the feet of of the disciples and he, he began to work his way around them. This was the job of a servant, not, not just of an ordinary servant. This was the job of the, the lowest ranking servant. If there was a slave in the household, then this would be the job of the slave to wash the feet. Could you imagine what a, what a horrible, stinky, rotten job that was? But it was an important job, if you could think, as they walked around in, in open sandals in a dry, dusty place. Could you imagine the stuff that they maybe stepped into sometimes as they wandered about the countryside? I had a, a friend, I grew up in Kilmarnock, and, and one of my, my friends um, there, he, he kind of left school and, and went and worked for the bank. He worked for the, the TSB and uh, he, he thought it was the bees knees, really. He got dressed up in his suit. And um, he, he, well, the rest of us were still students or still at school or whatever. He was earning money and he had a car and all this stuff. But we found out that, that his job on a Monday morning, because he was the, the lowest kind of ranking member of staff, he was the most junior clerk in the bank in the TSB in Kilmarnock, his job on a Monday morning was that he had to, with a, with a cloth and a, and a, a, a um, what you call it, a, a spray, he had to go out and wash down the, the cash machine. Now, if you can imagine, that maybe doesn't sound too bad at first, but I can tell you, on a Monday morning, after all the revelries of the weekend, the cash machine in Kilmarnock was not a pretty sight. All sorts of stuff, you know, you normally go at the cash machine to take money out, but there was a few deposits had been, had been left. And that was his, his job on a Monday morning because he was the, the lowest ranking. He, he was desperate for someone else to join and take over. 
But that's the kind of job Jesus did. He knelt down before his own disciples and he washed these grubby, disgusting, rotten feet. And we read at the end of that, it says in John's Gospel, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. When we put our belief in Jesus, when we respond to his invitation to follow him, we place ourselves under his rule. We enter his kingdom. And his kingdom is a, is a place of worship, of peace, of service, and of humility. And following Jesus means following his example. It's not about grabbing power and esteem or seeing ourselves as better than anyone else. It's about taking the values of the kingdom of Jesus into every area of our lives. And we cannot do that on our own. And that is why he, Jesus also promises on the Holy Spirit, because it's only with, with the help of the Spirit that we can truly serve, and serve one another and serve Jesus as we ought to. That we can be increasingly like him in our attitudes and in our actions. And so here at the ascension of Jesus, as Jesus is about to return to the Father, return to a place of glory, we are being reminded of his humble servant heart. And that is the heart that we need increasingly as we seek to live for him not to look to be rulers, but to aspire to be servants. That is what Jesus is looking for. But finally, we are also called to move from being spectators to, to participants. As soon as Jesus had, had finished speaking to, to the disciples and the others who were, who were crowded around him, we read that he was taken up before them, before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. You know, we don't actually, I, I, I was saying, I, I, I'm not sure I've ever actually preached on the ascension before. It's often something that, that's kind of overlooked. You know, we, we, we think about the life of Jesus, and we think about the death of Jesus, we think about all the events around his death, we think about his resurrection, and then perhaps we also, we, we celebrate uh, you know, the, the, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, but we often almost skip over the ascension. And it, it does seem a wee bit sort of weird, this idea of just Jesus floating up into heaven. It's like something out of Star Wars or something. It seems a bit strange. But as Jesus disappeared into the clouds, those disciples would have been reminded clouds were significant to them, symbolic. 
They would have been reminded of the, the glory and the presence of God. We, in Scotland, certainly, we, we don't tend to, to welcome the appearance of clouds. And when, when Emma and I left air this morning, it was pretty dreary. There was plenty of clouds about we, we to come east for the sunshine. If it's still there, we'll see when we get out. But the clouds to these disciples in their dry, parched land were often a symbol of blessing. And when they thought of the clouds, they, they were reminded of their history. Remember the children of Israel. How, how did they know where to go? How, how did God guide them or lead them as they journeyed through the desert? He led them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. The cloud, the pillar of cloud represented the presence of God with them. And then just not, just a, a few months ago, some of these disciples, Peter, James, and John, who were there with Jesus as he ascended, they had been given a special insight into the, the glory of Jesus. They'd been taken up a mountain, and there they saw the transfiguration of Jesus. They, they, they were given a special insight to the glory of Jesus. And then as they experienced that, a, a cloud descended upon them. And that cloud was God's presence coming down upon them. Psalm chapter 19 begins with this verse, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. You know, we... We sometimes, we, we look at a, perhaps in, certainly in the West Coast where, where I am, we look out over Arran and we see the sunset behind Arran and, and, and that, the sky sometimes seems like it's, it's a flame and, and we, and maybe more in the East here, you see the sunrise if you're up early enough. This, this picture is actually on, on Holy Island er, or Lindisfarne. And I, I spent a, a week there, sort of on, on retreat um, at the beginning of October. And it was great just to, to get away and, and just spend a week, a week with God, a week in prayer, a week just, you know, in that beautiful surrounding. But one morning, on the Friday morning, I got up early because I wanted to see the, the sunrise uh, in the North Sea. And I took this picture. And there's something special about being there. In Celtic Christianity, they sometimes talk about being of thin places. Now, I don't know what your theology makes of that, but, but they talk about places where almost heaven and earth seem closer together. And I'm sure we've all had experiences of that at times. And maybe it's because we've been in a particular place, but maybe it's been because we've just been reading God's Word, or we've been in prayer, or we've been worshiping with other Christians. And we get, God gives us some sort of special experience. We get a glimpse into eternity. Something resonates in our heart. And sometimes it can be a dangerous thing to go chasing after those experiences. God gives us 
those special experiences at times in order to help us to press on in the work that he has given us to do here on earth. And these disciples gathered on on this hillside, as they watched Jesus ascend into the clouds, as they are given a a special experience, and we read there that that they are gazing, they were looking intently up into the sky. You can just imagine that their, their mouths agape as they, they look in. They can't believe what they're seeing. There's something amazing. And um, in the, the ESV, the, another version of the Bible, it talks about them gazing into heaven. I quite like that translation there. They, they, they're gazing into heaven. They're given an insight into heaven. Sometimes God gives us just a taste of heaven while we're here on earth. But John Stott writes, it was the earth, not the sky, which was to be their preoccupation. The angels came, these two messengers came to them as they were staring into the sky and said to them, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. The angels were saying to him, look, don't stand here staring. There's work to be done. And Jesus is going to return one day. And he's going to return in glory in the same way as you've seen him go. It'll be the same in that. There'll be a great experience of his glory. It's going to be different in that. It's not just going to be a small group who are going to experience that. But we're told everyone will see his return. And every knee shall bow. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And it's important that we don't wait till then to do that, but that we do that now. But sometimes we can get caught up in experiences of worship. Sometimes we can think of the kingdom of God as being up there sometime. But these messengers from God came and said to the disciples, look, don't, why are you staring off into the sky? The kingdom of God is down here. The kingdom of God is found wherever God's name is honored, wherever Jesus is worshipped. His kingdom comes alive in your acts of kindness, generosity, humility, and service. And so from the mountaintop experience of Jesus' ascension, these disciples were to go out and be witnesses to the the life and gospel of Jesus. They were to spread the good news in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. These disciples began that journey with a prayer. They went back to where they were living. And they, they began to pray and wait on God for, for what was to happen. And that perhaps is where we need to start. We need to start with prayer. Yes, with 
each of us praying, but, but a, a commitment to communal prayer, to gathering together to pray and to wait on God, because God speaks to us as, commu- as a community, not just as individuals. He speaks to us as a community of His people. And this morning, He's challenging us to move on with Him, to move from being doubters to believers, to move our attitudes from, from longing to, to, to have power, perhaps over others, to be servant-hearted. And He's calling on us not to, not to be on the sidelines, not to be observers, but to be participants in His kingdom. Why don't you, this morning, if you haven't already done so, why don't you give your heart and life over to Jesus? There's a place for you in His kingdom. And there's work for you to do. Whatever age or stage you are in life, there's work for you to do in His kingdom. Thank you.